This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, March 3rd. I'm Doug Blair. And I'm Virginia Allen. Early treatment of COVID-19 was not prioritized by health officials. Why? Dr. Peter McCullough says he believes there was a suppression of early treatment in an effort to promote the vaccine. Dr. McCullough joins the Daily Signal podcast from the Conservative Political Action Conference to share his insights on the failure to treat COVID-19. Also on today's show, we speak with British conservative Nigel Farage. Farage explains how Russia's war on Ukraine will have deep ramifications for the continent, as well as how that war will affect our relationship with Europe here at home. But before we get to those conversations, let's hit our top news stories of the day. As Russia continues its invasion of Ukraine, President Biden continued to express his support for the country and its people. He also condemned Russia for targeting civilian areas. During a brief encounter with reporters on Wednesday morning, Biden addressed a question over whether or not Russia was intentionally targeting civilian areas. It's clear they are, he said. Biden also reiterated his support for Ukraine, saying that his administration is doing everything we can. Additionally, on Wednesday, the Biden administration announced a new series of reprisals towards Russian ally Belarus. The administration plans to restrict exports of key technologies toward the country. The Commerce Department also announced that it would extend export controls placed on Russia last week to Belarus. The European Union additionally introduced sanctions on Belarus this Wednesday. The United Nations has passed a resolution condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The measure calls on Russia to immediately withdraw its troops from Ukraine. But the action does not have any real authority to compel Russia to pull its troops out of Ukraine. The United Nations is a 193-member body. 141 nations voted in support of the resolution. Only five nations voted against the measure, including Russia, Belarus, Syria, Eritrea, and North Korea. The other 35 countries abstained from the vote. The Ukrainian people and military are continuing to fight against the Russian invasion. CNN reports that already more than 2,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed during Russia's invasion. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced new guidance on Tuesday for Florida workers concerning mask requirements. Here's that announcement via DeSantis's Twitter. For all the businesses, you know, we are recommending officially against force masking policies, particularly for retail workers and for people working in the services industry and in our hospitality industry. Every time I go to these places, I'll be in these big events and you have all these people having such a good time and the poor servers are forced masked. And I will ask them, are you allowed to take the mask off? They say, not yet. They're all waiting for it. They all want to be liberated. They want to be treated normally. And in Florida, yes, this is based on science and data, but it's also the case that when you have health guidance that conflicts with the data that has the effect of creating a two-tiered society, that is harmful as well. And you don't want to have instruments of public health marginalize different communities of people based on their occupation or vaccination status or anything like that. DeSantis's announcement follows a press release last week announcing changes to Florida's COVID-19 guidance. 
That guidance recommended pushing back on unscientific corporate masking, reducing isolation for all Floridians, including those in schools and daycares, and recommending that physicians should exercise their individual clinical judgment and expertise based on their patients' needs and preferences. Now stay tuned for our conversations with cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough and Nigel Farage. At the Heritage Foundation, we believe that every single policy issue discussed in D.C. tells a story. So we want to tell it well. On the Heritage Explains podcast, co-hosts Tim Desher and Michelle Cordero take one policy issue a week, mix in a creative blend of clips, narration, and hard-hitting interviews to equip you on crucial issues in under 20 minutes. So get your story straight. Subscribe to Heritage Explains wherever you listen to podcasts. I am so pleased today to be joined by Dr. Peter McCullough, a cardiologist. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. So let's go ahead and dive in, talking about COVID-19 and preventative treatment. So I know, um, thinking back to, well, and even, you know, before we before we dive in, let me ask you, could, could you just share a little bit of, of your own uh, of your own credentials, your own background in the field of medicine, so our audience kind of knows the perspective that you're coming from? Yeah, I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist, uh, non-invasive cardiology in Dallas, Texas. So I have a large uh, academically oriented practice. I see and care for patients about half the time. The other half the time, I'm an author and editor and clinical investigator, now a news commentator. Since the start of the pandemic, I have uh, had my complete and total clinical and academic focus on COVID-19. I've learned a lot about it. I have uh, over 50 publications in the peer-reviewed literature on COVID-19, over 650 overall in the National Library of Medicine. I've testified twice in the U.S. Senate. America has relied on my, uh, my opinions and expertise the important points, and the CDC was right on this originally, that 15% of people cannot get COVID. That was the estimates when we do what's called uh, herd immunity calculations. And now we understand, leading work by uh, Sabine Hazen in California has shown that the constellation of bacteria that's in the nasopharynx that's contiguous to the GI tract in some people protects them against COVID, believe it or not. The virus just can't set up shop in the nasopharynx, and so therefore the natural microbiome protects them. For people who are susceptible and vulnerable to COVID-19, we've learned the most important preventive measure is nasal washes. So because the virus, we literally breathe it in and it sets up shop for about three to five days and it replicates, that we can wash the, uh, the nose and the mouth with dilute Povidone iodine, which is dilute betadine or dilute hydrogen peroxide, squirting some up in the nose, sniffing it back, and then spitting it out, doing twice on each side and gargle. That is a thorough nasal wash. 12 clinical studies support it, including three large randomized trials. Okay, so let's go back to March 2020. Obviously, at that point, we didn't know a ton about COVID-19, but you were sitting in meetings with health officials, medical experts. Take us into those rooms. What, what was being said? What were the conversations that were happening about early treatment? There was a context of fear. Everyone was fearful. They were fearful for themselves, for their staff, for their patients. They were fearful of contagion spreading through hospitals. Remember early on, we had heard about nursing home outbreaks. Well, if nursing home outbreaks occurred, why wouldn't they occur in hospitals? Why wouldn't hospitals be wiped out? So the very first discussions were all driven by fear. We quickly learned that we could actually contain the virus. We used negative pressure ventilation in the hospital, used PAPRs and more extensive personal protective equipment, and thankfully there were no major hospital outbreaks. 
The next stages of thought was how to handle it in the hospital. What can we do for the sickest of patients? And then we worked our way backwards. You know, it's been two years, and finally the CDC has its first little monogram cartoon out that says treat the virus early. Two years. So now I've been saying that from the very beginning, and it's not uncommon for doctors to be years ahead of uh, society's guidelines and, and other, other bodies. So why do you think that there wasn't a focus earlier on on early treatment? I think they're overwhelmed. I think people are overwhelmed with the, the nature of it. You know, we weren't ready for this in any way, uh, shape, or form. And I think there was an overwhelming uh, feature to it. And then there was this immediate task at hand, right? Stop the spread of the virus, treat sick patients in the hospital. But as things uh, wore on, I think when uh, it was known uh, about the advent of the vaccines, I think there were steps taken, unfortunately, to suppress early treatment. Why? That's an interesting statement to make. Why do you think that steps to actually treat the virus early that that information would have been suppressed. There was a belief, and I think there's still a belief today among many stakeholders, is that for the only way a vaccine's gonna work is if every single person takes it. A needle in every arm. A needle in every arm was the most important. And there is a belief that, listen, it's not gonna work unless everybody takes it. And so in order to do that, if we have suppression of early treatment and people think there's no other option, they're gonna be much more likely to take the vaccine. So I think actually suppression of early treatment was by design a vaccine promotion strategy. Okay. So where do we stand today with early treatment? We have a drug called Paxlovid, is a Pfizer oral medication, 90% effective in preventing COVID-related hospitalizations and clinical trials. The FDA granted emergency use authorization in December. The Biden administration, they've agreed to to purchase 10 million doses of that and distribution is, is underway so far. So are, are we beginning to kind of right this ship as far as early treatment and do what we need to do? Yeah, we have many signs that early treatment. Of course, uh, doctors treat ahead of uh, pharmaceutical offerings. They treat ahead of guidelines in society. So early on in the pandemic, uh, uh, the oral nasal washes, nutraceuticals and supplements, the intravenous monoclonal antibodies, don't forget those emergency use authorized, they were approved before the vaccines. So we use them, I've used them in my practice consistently since the release. Uh, and then the oral drugs, the first year of the pandemic was the year of hydroxychloroquine. The second year was the year of ivermectin. I think the third year is gonna be the year of Paxilvoid, which the data look great on Paxilvoid. It's a five day course, combination of nelfampiravir and ritonavir, protease inhibitors that really shut down the virus. Very effective as you stated. And then I think as a weak second choice would be molinopiravir, which is the Merck drug, only about 30% effective. But these drugs will not stand alone. We need to use inhaled budesonide, oral steroids, oral colchicine, oral aspirin, and blood thinners in the highest risk patients. But it's great to have Pfizer drug available. And what my patients tell me is they go to the pharmacy, no copay. They simply go and pick it up. It's wonderful. Interesting. Okay. So it's a combination of all these different tools and resources. Right. I, I want to ask you a little bit about um, Joe Rogan. So you went on the Joe Rogan podcast back in December, just actually a couple weeks before Dr. Robert Malone went on. And after, you know, you were, you were criticized. Joe Rogan was criticized for your interview. Uh, and then after Dr. Robert Malone, there came this kind of cry from the far left to cancel, to deplatform Joe Rogan. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I'll give you the context of this. Pierre Corey and Brett Weinstein, who's an evolutionary biologist, they went on with Joe Rogan a few months ahead of me. Uh, Joe ended up getting COVID. 
uh, his friend Aaron Rodgers, quarterback for the um, Packers, got COVID. They, they followed the McCullough protocol, so they knew it. So Aaron was on Pat McAfee saying, listen, I took the McCullough protocol. There is a protocol that I developed with other doctors, been copyrighted in my name by other doctors to honor me. And uh, because of that, there was a setup, and Joe reached out to me, and I couldn't get to his uh, studio for about a month. So when I prepared with slides, I had over 100 scientific slides. They were curated by the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. I sent it to Joe's producer, sent it to Joe. I said, Joe, this is gonna be a medical grand rounds. No opinion, no hyperbole. I'm just gonna show you the data. We sat down in his studio, three solid hours, and Joe is very intelligent. He asked good questions, he's very perceptive, and uh, it was basically a disclosure of the state of the science on COVID-19. What was really interesting, I was on December 8th. By December 27th, we had hit all new records for the Rogan Experience. We passed Elon Musk, everyone else, and people said, wow, this is such a helpful uh, interview to help understand COVID, and then the blowback happened. And the blowback happened, well, Dr. McCullough, then Dr. Malone, then it was Joe Rogan, then it was Joe Rogan about his prior podcasts. Right, so, uh, and then after, after myself and Dr. Malone, I was the treating medical doctor. Dr. Malone was the preclinical vaccinologist, scientist. He had Dr. Majid Nawaz on. Nawaz from the UK basically filled out the story about the digital passports and the global uh, strategy about the Great Reset. Joe Rogan's eyes got so big during the Nawaz interview, the pictures are priceless. So here we are today. Joe Rogan is in the thick of it now. He's a wonderful guy. He's a friend. He's a wonderful guy. He's come out with a video about censorship and about how censorship is a sign that freedom is being attacked. And he's right. And, and as we sit here today, I have got the, the most frequently viewed and listened to interview of all time on the Joe Rogan Experience. I'm the winner right now. And I haven't been deplatformed and neither there's Joe, but other, there's, there's collateral damage of other prior interviews. Neil Young has come back to Spotify, so has uh, Prince Harry. And interestingly, Spotify carries Robert F. Kennedy and the uh, Children's Health Defense, which has strident views against the vaccines, and they haven't said anything about RFK. Wow, wow, okay, real fast before we let you go. Are we on the right path with COVID-19? Are, are we out of the woods on this? The emergency phase is over, which is wonderful. You can see here, we got thousands of people here at CPAC. No one's wearing masks. I'll be speaking uh, just ahead of President and former President Trump. And I plan to, if I can, I'm gonna ask a question. How many of you have been through it? You'll see that in large groups like this, most people have been through COVID-19. They have some degree of protection. People's worry levels are down. There still will be some residual cases that we'll treat going forward, but we've got this. We can go back to normal. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today is Nigel Farage, honorary president of Reform UK and a presenter on GB News. Nigel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Of course, pleasure to have you. We've gotten some heat for your tweet earlier today on Ukraine, which it's the news topic of the day. So 
You wrote, well, I was wrong. Putin has gone much further than he thought I thought he would. Mm -hmm. A consequence of EU and NATO expansion, which came to a head in 2014, it made no sense to poke the Russian bear with a stick. Could you elaborate what you meant by that? Yeah, 2014, um, the Ukrainian government was brought down in what was called the Orange Revolution. And it was interesting. In Kiev, there were people waving European Union flags. Mm -hmm. It had been European Union policy to extend, extend, extend. NATO policy to extend, extend, extend. All of this despite the fact we'd made promises after the fall of the Berlin Wall that NATO would not extend. Mm -hmm. And I could see Putin's anger mm -hmm. at the time. And what we've done is to give him a nationalist cause. We've given the nationalist a cause, one that he can sell to the Russian people. Um, and I've been right, mm. sadly. I've been right. We've, we've provoked the Russian bear. Uh, he now appears to be out of control. None of what I said is, uh, is uh, as my critics would say, um, supportive of Putin. <laughs> Funny, isn't it, really? You know, all these people that supported Iraq and Afghanistan, which I didn't, you know, all the warmongers are now saying I'm somehow pro-war. Mm. I mean, the whole thing is twisted around its neck. I, for 30 years, have felt this ever east was expansion of both the organizations was a mistake. Mm -hmm. So what now that we've, you've said he's been unleashed, so what is the response now from the UK? What should we be doing here? Well, we're talking sanctions um, and fine, but all that does is push up the price of gas and oil, which means everyone pays. The other worry about sanctions is that it drives Putin closer to China. Mm in terms of, you know, where's he going to issue his bonds and raise money? Well, China, uh, where's he going to sell his gas and oil if we do slowly in Europe start buying less of it? China. Uh, in the end, of course, China will swallow him up and have him for breakfast. But short term, that suits him. It doesn't suit us as a world for Russia and China to have got closer together. I think the big thing now is NATO. I... I understand why many Americans will say, well, look, you know, where the hell is Ukraine? Why does this matter? I understand why many Americans will say, well, World War I, World War II, how many times do we have to come? But if we don't defend the integrity of NATO now, mm. and that means Poland and Estonia, if we don't defend that now, then the West, has, has, the West is finished mm. Mm. as a cohesive unit. It will give great encouragement to China to do what the hell they want. And the truth of it is that NATO is nothing without America. Nothing. Does Putin move on Poland and Estonia now that he's moved on Ukraine? I don't know. Hmm. I just don't know. But it has to be a fear. And, you know, frankly, ever since Kabul fell, ever since America walked away, there's been a question, do America actually want to lead the Western world now or don't they? Mm. It's a big, big question. And there's no easy answer. So far, through Biden, it's difficult to determine what the answer to that question <laughs> is. And most Americans won't want to get involved in a war in Europe, sure. But equally, I think when push comes to shove, most Americans would want America to be the leader of the Western world. So. Mm. These are the things that you have to weigh up. Things are up in the air. Now, in terms of just, there have been responses from both the UK and America, but also Europe has had some responses too. Most infamously, I guess, 
Germany has decided to cancel the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They're going yes. to stop doing yes. that. After Donald Trump vetoed it, and then Joe Biden approved it. Right. And Joe Biden also, of course, he approved a pipeline there, but closed a pipeline down in America. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. Right. So it, I guess the response from European countries, you're not seeing this as effective. It's not very cohesive. I mean, today's a bit more cohesive. Mm. This week's been a shambles. Um, interestingly, the British have been quite strong. You know, Brexit Britain has a much bigger voice mm. than it had before, and we are seeing some of that. I suppose Boris Johnson's premiership has been saved because <laughs> it was in a bit of trouble before. You know, elected as a Conservative and governing as a Liberal. Mm. It, it wasn't working out very well. We'll see. I mean, you know, so there, there are two things to answer here. One is the future of NATO. Mm. Is America assuming that role unconditionally over NATO territory? The second question is Ukraine, what do we do? Mm. We're not sending troops in. But are we going to send in more kit? Are we going to get involved in airstrikes? Are we not? You see, those eastern provinces in Ukraine are Russian-speaking. I want to be with Russia. Western Ukraine doesn't. Mm. So, another big decision. It's the possibility of maybe a divided Ukraine. You know, Ukraine didn't really work anyway. Mm. Just didn't work. As a concept or more in the sense that it was never going to work where Russia was at its doorstep? It was never going to work with Russia trying to put it eastwards and Europe trying to push it and pull it westwards. And a deep, I mean, look, you know, Ukraine is a deeply divided, very corrupt country. Mm. Uh, you know, it's a mess. Why the hell we ever wanted it in NATO to give Putin yet another causes belli, I don't understand. We did speak a little bit before this about how the UK has eliminated virtually all COVID-19 restrictions. England has. England has. England has. Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland will follow, mm -hmm. but they'll be a lot slower. Uh, yes, yeah, taken us a long time to get to where we are, but we're there, and that's terrific news. It's a victory for, it's a victory for a free press, and it's a victory for the independent-mindedness of enough conservative backbenchers who rebelled against Johnson's position. Johnson has been forced into freeing us up. Hmm. Thank goodness. So you're saying that Boris Johnson would have preferred to maintain restrictions in the UK? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very clear at the end of December, he was calling Omicron an emergency. He's been forced to do this, but he's done it. Hmm. So he'll want to take credit for it. I'm not sure he deserves it, but he probably gets a bit. Sure. We're seeing similar things here in America where restrictions for Omicron were across the board and then all of a sudden they kind of fade away. Is, are yeah. we seeing something similar yeah, here? Yeah, and even Austria started to ease. Just Canada and New Zealand appear to have gone mad. Mm. Completely mad. But, no, I think the tide and force of public opinion now is, is going to push these governments back. I genuinely do. Sure. I pray so. Now, before we wrap, I would love to talk to you. You were one of the architects of Brexit. You were very much in favor of this even before it was sort of a thing um, when you were part of the UK Independence Party yeah. and then, of course, the Brexit Party. How has Brexit been for the UK? It seems yeah. like there were people that thought it was bad, but... Well, look, I mean, you know, the, the Conservative Party on their own would never have done this. Never have done the, There were critical voices. You're a skeptics, but I was Euro-certain. We shouldn't be there. Um, so, I mean, UKIP goes down in history as an amazing movement that completely changed the narrative in, in the UK. There is now, I mean, there's no going back. Mm. We're not rejoining. The anger is that Boris hasn't taken advantage of it. Mm. 
at all. And his chief negotiator, Lord Frost, has even resigned his position in frustration. Mm. And you do wonder whether Boris actually ever believed in it mm. or whether it was a political weapon. You know, because he joined the campaign very late. He'd never, ever suggested in the previous 25 years we should leave the EU. Mm. He was critical of bits of it. But look, we're better off than we were. We're speaking more freely on the world stage. We're able to join America in a, in a deal on the nuclear submarines with Australia, which, is, is, which we could not have done. We would not have come out of restrictions as EU members. Mm. We'd had to have marched a bit with the others. So we're getting some benefits, but there's a lot more to be had. Mm. Overall, well, it's seven out of 10 so far. Mm. There's a lot more to be done. Sure. One final question on that note. There was a concern following Brexit about what to do with Northern Ireland. How have things played out on that front? Terribly. Mm. You know, Johnson said, oh, no, it'll all be fine. It's not fine. Northern Ireland's effectively been annexed, economically annexed, by the European Union. It's a mess, and it's one of those areas that needs tidying up and pretty quickly. Otherwise, we could see more troubles in Northern Ireland. That's the last thing we want. Absolutely. All right, well, that was Nigel Farage, Honorary President of Reform UK and a presenter at GB News. Nigel, thank, thank you so much. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. As always, you can find the Daily Signal podcast on your listening app of choice, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. If you haven't already, please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating and encourage others to subscribe. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow morning. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.